following is episode five of the Octagon of Reason, a deep dive into the ethics of affirmative action. This is obviously being done in light of the recent ruling of the United States Supreme Court, where they deemed all forms of race-based affirmative action policies in college admissions as unconstitutional because it violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which pretty much says that all governing bodies must equally ensure the protection of all rights to all citizens. Now, I am aware that this is primarily a political conversation, a political issue, but here I'm going to make an ethical approach to it. Although it is very much possible that some of the things that I might say may coincide with the more liberal approach to affirmative action or even the more conservative approach to affirmative action. But whatever the case it may be, this is only and just my take on affirmative action. And my aim here is to make a more ethical approach to it. So regardless of what the decision of the Supreme Court might have been, I want to believe that my approach to it, my take on this, would have, would have still remained the same unless I was presented with different arguments about it, which I expect to be presented with different arguments from you guys in the comments down below. So before we get into it, please subscribe to the channel. Give this video a thumbs up. That really helps me a lot. And, and tell me what you thought of the episode in the comments down below. Make sure you contribute to the conversation there as well so we can engage in a little back and forth. Make sure to follow me on my, on my socials. As I said the last time, I already have a TikTok account, which is the same as my Instagram account to just go there and search for Galton Giovanni, which is at Galton Giovanni. That is also my Instagram accounts. So follow me there. And I post a lot of Octagon Arisen content there. So you can also engage in a little back and forth there too. Make sure to follow us on Spotify and Apple podcast, because that's where we post every single one of our episodes. Follow us there. Uh, make sure to activate the notifications bell. That way, whenever we post an episode, you'll be notified as soon as we do so and you can keep up with everything that we do. So now, without further ado, my name is Skelton Giovanni Masinga, and this is the Octagon of Reason. So before we get into it, right, I'm, I'm not sure how many of you guys have watched the second episode, so if you haven't done so, please go ahead and watch it, because right at the beginning of, the, of that episode, I talked about uh, something I refer to as the rules of reason, or the rules within the Octagon of Reason. And those rules were essentially uh, <clears throat> were essentially a guideline for the conversations that we're going to be having here in the Octagon of Reason. So one of the rules was always defining the problem. I, I'm not quite sure how I worded it back, back in the episode, but it was somewhat uh, like it was somewhat about defining the problems before we engage in a conversation. That's because whenever we have a uh, a conversation with somebody, I've noticed that. Uh, sometimes people tend to disagree with one another, not because they have different opinions, but more so because they have different de definitions of the problem that they're talking about, of the, of the topic of the problem, of, of the topic of the conversation, rather, that they're they're engaging in. So what ends up happening is that, unbeknownst to them, they end up having different conversations because they failed to define the problem first before sharing their opinions about it. So the first thing that we must do whenever we engage in a conversation with somebody, especially when we're dealing with such heavy topics such as affirmative action or um, transgenderism, transracialism, our thoughts on the economics, uh, the best economic system, so on and so forth, we must first define the problem. And we need to find a definition that is neutral in the sense that all parties involved in the conversation must agree on this definition. So 
Before we talk about the ethics of affirmative action, we must first define affirmative action itself. And I found a definition from it from Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, and I think it's the most unbiased definition of it I could find, which pretty much says, affirmative action is the use of policies, legislation, programs, and procedures to improve the educational or employment opportunities of members of certain demographic groups as a remedy to the effects of long-standing discrimination against such groups, okay? Uh, in short, affirmative action is a policy framework that works as a remedy, rather, of the longstanding uh, effects of discrimination against members of certain groups. And it was first implemented in the United States back in the 1960s in light of the civil rights movement. So the administration of Lyndon B. Johnson, also known as LBJ, who was the 36th president of the United States, decided to implement affirmative action affirmative action policies under the landmark Civil Rights Act of 19 of 1964 as a way to increase the educational as well as the employment opportunities of black people at the time because they thought that there was a way uh to fix the effects of of discrimination against black people and also catapult them to better uh economic standing within the US at the time. So on one hand, uh, you had the civil rights, the civil rights act of 1964, and alongside it, they implemented affirmative action as a policy framework. So further down the line, just a few years later, in the 1970s, that's where we saw the first uh, big hurdle when it came to the when it came to this whole thing of affirmative action. When a 35 year old man by the name of Alan Baki, who applied to the medical school of the University of California, Davis, was rejected twice, essentially, right? It was rejected twice, both in 1973 and 1974, although he had, uh, he met the qualifications to be accepted into the school. And it was, and, and apparently it was also, it also scored higher than some of the minority minority students that were accepted into the school, right? And he, sued the school claiming that the reason why it was rejected was only because of his skin color, only because of his race, because he was Caucasian, he was white. And what was happening at UC Davis at the time is that they used to reserve 16 out of the 16 out of a hundred spots of each entering class to minority students, right? So if you were a minority back in the seventies and you were applying to the medical school, uh, uh, a Davis, right? So 16 out of the 100 spots were already reserved to minority students, right? So this means that they uh, they had those 16 spots, but they also had the opportunity to fill the remaining 84 spots, whereas the non-minority students, i.e. Alan Baki, they could only apply, they could only uh, vie for the remaining 84 spots. So he saw that and he, th and he thought of it as unfair. And as a matter of fact, he thought of it as unconstitutional. So he sued the school and he su actually sued the regents of the University of California, which is the entity that supervised the school. So he decided to, to sue the school and his case ultimately was taken, uh, ultimate, was ultimately taken to the Supreme Court. And at the time, the Supreme Court ruled in his favor saying that the use of racial quotas in universities was unconstitutional. However, they they said that the use of race as 
a factor in the admission criteria to a university or college was not unconstitutional. So on one hand, they they deemed the use of racial, the racial quota system as being unconstitutional, but on the other, they still allowed race itself to be used as, as a factor for admitting students. Alan Baki was then uh, uh, granted admission into the uh, the University of Davis, so that that case was was settled. So we thought, right? Because years down the line, in two thousand and three, the lady by the name of Barbara Grutter applied to the to the law school of the University of Michigan, and she was denied, although she had a three point eight GPA and she scored a one sixty one in the LSAT. So the LSAT is the is the law school version of the SAT. So that's the standardized exam that is required for uh, for admission into a law school. So she scored a 161 things. Uh, that, that's, you know, that's that's good. That's that's a good score, right? And she had a 3.8 undergrad GPA. So she was she was uh, fairly qualified to be accepted into the into the school, but she was rejected and she decided to do the same thing as Baki back in the 70s to sue the school claiming that the only reason why she was rejected was because of her skin color just because she was white right and she knew at the time and, he, and she was uh and she was right about this she knew at the time that the university of michigan just like most schools used race as an as as a an admission factor right when considering a student's admission application rather they uh they uh, considered the race as well that was obviously a part of the affirmative action policy program that initiated back in the 60s. So the case was also ultimately taken to the Supreme Court. And I think the name of the case was Grutter v. Bollinger. Yes, Grutter v. Bollinger. So what ended up happening is that the court ruled against her, stating that the school had a compelling reason to use race as one of the as one of the factors for admission and the reason was that educational benefits i'm sorry the reason was that there were uh a lot of educational benefits that uh that may arise out of a diverse student body essentially they're saying that because of the educational benefits that originate from having a diverse student body Therefore, the school had a compelling reason to use race as one of the many factors when it came to admitting their students. So the schools the schools were saying that having a diverse student body significantly improved the quality of education of their institutions. So it made sense, at least that was the reading of the of the of the Supreme Court at the time, to allow schools to still use race as one of the factors when it came to admitting their students. So Barbara, Barbara's, Barbara's uh, case, unfortunately for her, did not go uh, her way. But then years down the line in 2013, the Students for Fair Admissions sued Harvard for claiming that they were uh, showing preferential treatment to their white applicants in detriment of their Asian American applicants, right? And they were saying that Harvard was going against the the Civil Rights Act, the Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by doing so. So they appealed to the court and the and the case was ultimately taken by the Supreme Court. And this year, I think just a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court uh, 
ruled in, in their favor, claiming that Harvard, as well as UNC, if I'm not mistaken, they were violating the Civil Rights Act of 19, 1964, as well as the as well as the equal uh, equal protection clause of the Fourteenth Amendment by showing preferential treatment to their uh, to their white applicants and other races. I, I believe so, in detriment of Asian Americans. They not only did that, but they also uh, overruled the decisions uh, of Grutter as well as the Bakke decision of the seventies which saw them completely eradicating all forms of race-based affirmative action when it came to affirmative action policies when it came to admitting students into colleges and universities. So this whole thing just resulted in a huge uproar in the United States. And I think it, it started the conversation whether there was something unethical being done by the courts by eliminating all forms of race-based affirmative actions. As you guys can see, there's a lot of politics playing around here with the more liberal side saying that affirmative action was actually a way to reach uh, equality between the races in the United States, whereas the more conservative side opted from, you know, from neglecting affirmative action and saying that such practices only... only uh, are not only unconstitutional, but it also just uh, widened the widened the 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 gap and the problem, the conflicts between the races in the, in the country. So, what is my view on the matter, right? So, I thought long and hard about this, and I realized I, th I thought that the best way I could use to explain my view is by referring to Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. So in the book, Nicomachean Ethics, which is also known as Aristotle's Ethics, Aristotle says that, so the whole crux of the book is that the only way to live a good life, the only way to achieve what he refers to as human flourishing, which he views it as the highest human good, right? That's what he called, he calls eudaimonia, sometimes is translated to, to happiness, but in reality is flourishing. Human flourishing is through living a virtuous life. So virtue is the vehicle that takes you, uh, that that allows you to to reach your demonia, to that allows you to have that, um, to 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 experience that level of flourishing that one must aim for in his life. So you ought to be a virtuous human being. You ought to, uh, you you ought to de to desire to be virtuous, to live a life of virtue. So. <clears throat> He also, in light of that, he also talks about the, like how how does like how how does it feel like to live a a, a life that lacks virtue, but also how does a how does it look like to live a life that you know that has virtue but it has it in, in excess, right? Essentially, I want you guys to picture this in the form of a spectrum where you have virtue at the very center of it, right? So that's your aim. You want to live a virtuous life, so you have virtue right at the middle of that spectrum. But then on one end of the spectrum, you have the deficiency, which is, you know, the deficient deficiency of that virtue. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the excess. Like, how does it look like to have, to be too much virtues for lack of a better word? So a picture, picture of, say, courage, right? So think of courage as a virtue. So courage is a virtue. So courage is right there in the middle. But then, Lack of courage 
that means you are a coward, right? So cowardice becomes the deficiency of the virtue of courage. But then rashness becomes the excess, right? So think of this as this. If you're standing in front of a lion and your decision is to attack the lion instead of like remaining still as I think that's the, you know, that's the advice. We're told to remain still or something or make yourself appear big. I'm not sure if that's when it comes to when you're facing a lion or a bear, but doesn't matter. That's not the point here. The point is that, you know, you're, you know, right in front of a lion and apparently you have to remain still. But because you're, you know that you ought to be a courageous person, you ought to be a courageous human being, you think that the best way to deal with that is by running to the lion and trying to attack him. So that's not courage if you decide to do that. That's, that's quite frankly, that's just being, that's stupidity uh, in its highest form. But that's not only stupid, but it's also a rash, you know, decision, right? So rashness, although it kind of looks like courage, is not quite it, right? It's the excess of courage. And cowardice is the deficiency of courage, of courage right? The other example that I can think of it right now is ambition, right? If you want to achieve great things in life, if you want to become uh, the best student in your class, if you want to make a lot of money in life, you ought to be ambitious. You ought to work hard to achieve uh, to achieve your dreams. So ambition is a virtue. To be ambitious is a virtuous thing. So ambition is right there in the middle. Right in the middle, in that sweet spot of virtue, you have ambition, right? So the lack of ambition is laziness. So laziness, slothfulness, is the deficiency of the virtue of ambition. But there is such a thing as being too ambitious, right? Oftentimes I say that when you are too much of something that is good, that is never a good thing. It doesn't make sense. Sometimes we say, uh, so-and-so is too nice. Never take that as a compliment. If somebody comes to you and tells you that, too, that you're too nice, that's either their way of saying that you're naive, sometimes unbeknownst to them, right? But you're usually naive if somebody tells you that you're too nice or you're somebody that allows people to treat you any kind of way without being assertive without standing up for yourself. So when you're referred to as too nice, or even if you think of yourself as too nice, that's not a good thing. That is a problem, right? If somebody says that you are too loving, then something's wrong there. That means that's probably means that you just allow, it pretty much is the same thing as being too nice, right? You probably allow people to treat you any kind of way with no repercussion whatsoever, repercussions whatsoever. So you cannot be too much of something that is good, right? So if somebody refers to you as too nice, don't take that as a compliment. That's probably their way of saying, man, you got to stop being passive. You got to stop being naive and you have to do something about that. But I digressed. So I was saying that if you're too ambitious, wink, wink, see, that's something wrong. There's something wrong there. Then that means that you're probably greedy, right? Because that's what it means to be too ambitious. Then you're greedy. So that's, so uh, being greedy, that's the excess of uh, of ambition, right? So greed is the excess of the virtue of ambition. By the same token, that's how I view the matter of affirmative action, right? So we have equality. Equality, that's what everybody was fighting for back in the 60s. By everybody, I mean, you know, 
at least some people were fighting for equality back back in the sixties. You know, the black people, the black Americans were fighting for equality uh, during the civil rights movement because that's the virtue, right? That's what we all want: equality. We want to be equal uh, in the eyes of the law. Before the law, we're all equal. So they're fighting for the rights to be seen as equal to their uh, white American white American uh, counterparts, right? But you know. That's that's not what was happening. Therefore, they were fighting for the right to be equal. So equality is a virtue. That's what you're aiming for. So right in the middle, you have equality. On one end, on the side of the deficiency of the virtue of equality, you had discrimination. So that's what was happening. So they were they they were living in a society. They were living in a context that lacked equality. They were living in a place where equality was deficient. That's why they had discrimination. That is not a good thing. So they were on the side of the of discrimination, and their aim was to get to equality. That was the aim. But the problem uh, was that, at least in my view, was that in an attempt to get to equality, in an attempt to get to the middle, they overshot it, and they reached the other side of the spectrum, which is affirmative action. That is why affirmative action is also referred to as positive discrimination. doesn't matter how much we try to... In, to <clears throat> embellish it there's no way to make that sound nice there is no such a thing as positive discrimination right discrimination is a bad thing is it a, it's a prejudice and it's universally accepted as being a bad thing right so there's no way you can make something that is bad in and of itself good right there is no such a thing as positive discrimination it is discrimination it is wrong and we should not uh and we should not advocate for it. But in my view, that's what affirmative action does. Although the idea was to diminish the effects of discrimination, they ended up doing the same thing, but just in a different way. So I see discrimination in itself and affirmative action as being two sides of the same coin, right? It's the same thing. You're pretty much doing the same thing, although you think that's the best way to solve the problem. And if you do think that's the best way to sort of solve the problem, then you need to spend more time thinking about brainstorming potential solutions for the problem, right? So that's pretty much how I view affirmative action. So I put it, I put it in the Aristotle, you know, virtual spectrum. That's not the actual name. I'm just, you know, I'm just saying that for the sake of imagery. I want you guys to think of it as the, the as a spectrum, right? So affirmative action is the excess of equality. When you try to reach equality, so you go too far, you do start doing way too much, way more than you should, and you start discriminating against the people that were, uh, you start discriminating against the people that were in the position of discriminating uh, before. I, that, that's, that was a mess, but I, I'm sure you guys got my point. So that's pretty much how I view affirmative action. I understand that some people were making the argument that, well, they still have college, colleges and universities still have, uh, you know, legacy admissions whereby, say, your parents and your grandparents attended that school. So your application is, is looked at with a little bit of more favor, right? So your legacy, right? And they were like, oh, if people can have legacy, why can't, why can't we have race-based affirmative action? I view both things, both things as being wrong, and I think we should get rid of it. Right. Because I don't think it I don't it makes no sense whatsoever. Like, oh, your dad was here. 
so what? So you must be there as well. It makes no sense. If you don't have the qualifications for it, I don't think um, that should be a part of the admission admissions admissions criteria. But unfortunately, it is. So I hope uh, I hope they can deal with that as well. And I don't understand why we must have things that are not uh, directly influential to one's academic uh, academic performance as one of the as one of the as one of the factors for for admission. I I never understood that concept. For me, it was always like, well, you know, this guy seems qualified, so you know, let's just let's just accept them. I understand that there are also certain things such as soft skills, right? Universities sometimes think about how, you know, think about the character of the person, how this person would, uh, would behave, would conduct themselves on campus, uh, assuming this person is very active. So that would be a good addition to the school. It's like, I, I think all those things should, you know, still be a part of the criteria for admission, but a person's race or whether their parents will went to the same school as the one they're applying to though you can't control those things so maybe what i'm saying is that all the things that you have no control over whatsoever shouldn't be a part of the admissions criteria you can't control your race you know you're black you're white you're i don't know brown or something you know like you can't control your race you can for all i care you could be blue and that was that like it's not going to be your fault right so if you're gonna look at if you're gonna be looked at or assessed in a different way just because of the skin color that you had no control over, I view that as being unfair. And that's why I look at the decision of the Supreme Court as, you know, I think they were right. It is, I mean, looked at looking at it constitutional, so it is unfair. So I think any person who's simply looking at the facts here can see that that was an unfair decision. Again, I'm making an ethical approach to this. So ethically speaking, I want to believe that if you just pay attention to the facts, if you just pay attention to the cards on the table, then you can be like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But there's more to it than just the facts, which is, I mean, it shouldn't be the case, right? But there's more to it than just the facts. And and some, I heard some people say that, well, it was, if not for affirmative action, then you we wouldn't see uh, certain black folks in schools like Harvard or UNC and so on and so forth. And for me, that's just the problem that comes from being in a very racially stratified society such as the United States of America. It is a very racially stratified society. So when you have a very racially stratified society, you start seeing every little thing through the lenses of race, right? So everything to you becomes becomes race-based. It's like, it's all about race. Even when it comes to like, like I'm a Christian, right? Even at church, you hear people say, oh yeah, I don't like that church because it was too white, right? Like, I don't, I don't know what that means. If you come to me and you tell me that, I'm like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what, what what's a too like I don't know what a, what does it mean to be in a church that is too white or to go to a to a black church but they say that all the time. Oh, my church is black. I go to a black church, right? If you were to ask me if I go to a black church, I'd be like, "Nah, I think they're evangelical," something like that, right? Because I understand you going to an evangelical church, I understand you're going to a Presbyterian church or a Lutheran church, 
a Baptist church and so on and so forth, because those are, you know, denominations, but not a black church. Like, what does that mean? So once you start, once, when you live in a place that is very racially stratified, then race tends to permeate into every little thing that you do, right? Even on things such as, you know, your, your life as, as a Christian, as a Christian individual, right? You go to church, then you view your church like this is a black church, this is a, a white church. Your pastor is not just a pastor that is there to preach the word of God and guide you guys in understanding of the word of God, but he's a black pastor or a white pastor, and you assess him differently based on the color of his skin. So that for me is a big problem. I obviously empathize with with Americans that think like that because you it was not your fault to be brought up in a society that has that mindset. But I believe that it is 100% your responsibility to change the way you, you view these things, to change the way you think about these matters, because it is quite frankly wrong and very dangerous because uh, in your personal, uh, in your personal interaction, interactions with people, if you look at them solely based on the color of their skin, that's going to influence the way you deal with them a lot because you going to create a an idea of how somebody thinks or how somebody acts solely based on the color of their skin and you're going to start projecting that whenever you see somebody that fits that image so you're going to start thinking that all white folks think like this all black folks think like this all i don't know brown folks think like this and so on and so forth so my point is like if you if that's how you you view people solely on the, on the color of their skin, then that's going to uh, you're going to have a lot of problems when it comes to relating with them, because that's how you're going to judge them, and that's not how it should be. But unfortunately, we become very well by by we. I'm I'm mostly saying Americans. Then this is my view as an observer, right? As a person who's going to school in the states, who who uh, lives with. Americans and talks to them and see how they think about these matters in class and out of class as well. I realized that, oh my God, everything, most things at least, which shouldn't be the case, is race based. Like race permeates every little thing that you guys that you guys just do. And now gender sometimes does the same thing. I think that's also the legacy of identity politics, right? You start uh, voice crack you start uh you you just analyze people and you deal with them based on their their group identity right based on the on the multitude of identity that uh, identities that that they have right so a woman okay i think a woman thinks like this so this how i'm going to deal with this person right and if they're if if this if it is a black woman then this is how you're going to deal with them but if it is a black and a black Christian woman, then the person probably thinks this way, which is not true, right? Uh, individuals are different, even if they share certain, uh, uh, you know, certain identities, I might say, they're different individuals. There are individuals because of that, because they are different, like you are an individual. So you think in a, in a certain way. And we ought to deal with you based on who you truly are, not based on our assumptions of you uh, or our assumptions, our assumptions of you that are uh, fed by the group identity, the group, the different identities, identities that you have. 
So, yeah, I think that's how we should start thinking about these things. But I'm saying all this, obviously, in light of affirmative action and how I tend to look at these matters. So it is very much important that we start to deal with people from an individual standpoint. Now you may ask me, so how do we make sure that people are not discriminated against when it comes to uh, college admissions, right? Well, just don't discriminate them. Just, you know, just don't discriminate them. So you might say, well, that's not a very helpful response, but it, it is, you know, it sounds like a cop-out response, but it's not. I think that's the way to do things, right? So you stop treating me as a black person and you start treating me as Kelton, right? And I'm not saying that you should not call out people when they're being racist. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you don't make race the primary motivator of anything that you do, right? And I think affirmative action ends up doing that, although they're trying to solve uh, the problem of racism. It's like they use racism to solve racism. So it's like a, a vicious cycle that just ends up creating more problems, doing more harm than good, in my opinion. I remember there was this interview. Uh, somebody was interviewing uh, Morgan Freeman. I can't remember the name of the guy. It was the Wallace guy from 60 Minutes, but I forgot the first name. I think, is it Mike Wallace? I'm not sure. But the Wallace guy from 60 Minutes, I forgot his first name. And he asked Morgan Freeman something in the lines of like, how do you fix racism? Right. Uh, oh, it was. I think it was being asked uh, asked about Black History Month, and was saying that it doesn't like it because Black History is American history, so it should just be incorporated in the general, you know, American history. Like they shouldn't have like a specific month to celebrate Black History because it's not. There's no such a thing as Black History. That was his argument. At least it's all American history, right? And then the uh, the interviewer, the the Wallace guy, asked him, "Then how do you fix racism?" And he said, and Freeman's answer was, stop talking about it. You know, you start, you stop, you uh, voice crack again. I don't know what's happening with me. But yeah, you stop dealing with me as a black man and I'll stop dealing with you or treating you as a white man. You know, you are Morgan Freeman and you are Wallace Guy. I forgot his first name, guys. I'm sorry. But still, that's my point. That's my point. It's like you just stop seeing people solely based on their race. I'm not saying, oh, I'm colorblind, I know what race you are. That's not what I'm saying, obviously. What I'm saying is just deal with them as a person, as an individual, right? And that's the next step. You should strive to do that. And I think that once you have policies or systems built around things such as affirmative action, it only emphasizes how racist the society truly is without actually solving the problem. Does it make sense? So, yeah, man, that's that's really what I think on this matter. This 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 is really my opinion on it. I can, I may probably have to, I would probably have to do a part two on this, depending on you guys on how you guys react to this. So please tell me what you guys think of this in the comments down below. Again, I was not making a political argument in favor or against affirmative action. This was an ethical argument on affirmative action. And my conclusion was that ethically speaking, it is wrong, you know, and it is my, it is my belief. I, it is my opinion that anybody who, and anyone who's who, who like would want to make an ethical approach to this or, or want to make an ethical take on affirmative action would probably think the same. So my goal here is to have all of you to step into the octagon of reason, wink, wink, 
and engage in this battle battle with me. Let, let us wrestle with the concept of affirmative action ethically, right? Not a political argument. I could not care less about the, the decision of the uh, of the of the Supreme Court on this matter, right? Yes, it was inspired by that, but that's not the point. So think of this as like we're talking about affirmative action, even if there is no conversation outside of the octagon of reason on the matter of affirmative of affirmative action. So that's all I have for you guys today. Thank you for watching. Please again like, subscribe, and I will see you guys next week. Ciao, ciao.